my brother Paul went missing here on July 13th. A search is currently underway for a missing hiker out in Joshua Tree. Authorities say 51-year-old Canadian citizen Paul Miller Hope has been missing and heartache. While the search for the Guelph hiker missing in California has been scaled back, family and friends of 51-year-old Paul Miller are praying. 51-year-old Paul Miller went off on a hike alone. He called his wife Friday morning from the 49 Palms trailhead, and that's the last time anyone's heard from him. Thousands of people have mysteriously vanished in America's wilderness. Join us as we dive into the deep end of the unexplainable and try to piece together what happened. You are listening to Locations Unknown. All right, uh, welcome to episode two of the Locations Unknown podcast. I'm your host, Mike Vandebogart. Uh, sitting alongside of me is our co-host, Joe Arado. How are, how are you doing today? I'm doing good, Mike. <laughs> Uh, we have a very interesting case for you today, a little different than what we did in our first episode, in that this case is very recent. The case is about a Canadian by the name of Paul Miller, who uh, disappeared in Joshua Tree National Park this July. The search is still ongoing. We were also lucky enough to sit down with the public information officer of Joshua Tree National Park, and we're going to be playing that interview a little bit later in the show. Yeah, we'll cut, we'll cut in and out to it for parts that... Yeah, we, it, it runs long if we play it straight. So we don't want to bore you. Yeah. Um, but George has a very unique insight in the park. He worked there for he's worked there for eight years and involved in every aspect of the search. And uh, it's great hearing from someone who was on the ground there. So uh, we'll get to that in a bit. First here, though, Joe is kind of going to go over a bit of the uh, profile of the park. Yep. So following the the normal format that we're doing, we'll give you a location profile. Cut in at some point. We'll have George tell you more information about the park because he's there all the time. And then we'll get into the character profile timeline and then the theories. So as Mike mentioned when we opened the show, it's Joshua Tree National Park. Uh, It's in California. It's in San Bernardino County and Riverside County. So it straddles both those areas because it's a very large park. It was originally declared a national monument in 1936. Joshua Tree was redesignated as National Park in 1994 when U.S. Congress passed the California Desert Protection Act. So it's just recently become a national park. If you're going to go camping there, there's nine established campgrounds. Two have water and flush toilets that can be reserved. So that's more your car camping. And I know we talked about that. That's typically not our scene. We're more backcountry. But when it comes to desert, that might be nice. The other campgrounds are first come, first serve. Backcountry camping is permitted with a few regulations. So it's like any typical park. You can do some backcountry. You have to let them know where you're going. That's usually for search and rescue purposes. So they do charge for those permits, but they're inexpensive. But they want to know where you're at and when you're going to check back in. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> every every place we've ever hiked, we always have to go to the permit office. And it's primarily so, yeah, they can keep a catalog of people coming in and out of the park for this very reason. Absolutely. So if you're going to be hiking, there are several several established trails within the park. Many can be accessed from campgrounds, shorter trails, such as one-mile hike through Hidden Valley, can see the beauty of the park without staying too far in the desert so there's a lot of hiking available to people who are not as experienced although as george will tell you later in the interview they do have some issues with people coming out there not dressing appropriately or not knowing what really to expect in a desert climate because even if you're only walking a mile if you're in 105 degrees in the middle of the day with dry heat and you don't have enough water that can make a a big difference you sometimes won't even know you're sweating it will just evaporate right off you and the next thing you know you're dehydrated yeah so it's yeah single bottle water typically doesn't cut it that's when you need to go out with gallons just for yourself (laughs) 
the last trail he was seen on was the 49 Palm Oasis. We won't get into that just yet, but that's one of the trails that he was on where they found his car. It's, it's not too big of a trail. It's not too hard of a trail. Some of the terrain that exists there, just lots of rock, lots of desert. The animals there, snakes, scorpions, spiders, coyotes, mountain lions. George is going to talk about that in a little bit. Exposure is just significant heat and sun. So what we're going to do now is we're going to cut to introduce George. As Mike said, he's the PIO of Joshua Tree National Park. We're going to cut to George and have him talk a little bit more about the description of the park and what it's like there. George, thank you very much for coming on the show. And uh, if you could please introduce yourself and give us a brief background. Yeah, my name is George Land. Um, I am the uh, public information officer and community outreach ranger here at Joshua Tree National Park. Excellent. So um, I'm just going to ask you a couple questions about the park and then uh, specifically about the hazards, and we'll just go forward from there. So roughly how many visitors are at your park each year that come through? Well, we're, we're in a serious upswing. When I got here about eight years ago, we were at 1.3 million a year. And um, this year, eight years later, we're going to break probably the 3.2 million mark. So we've, uh, we've doubled, or more than doubled, in the last, uh, last eight years. Oh, wow. So there's been a, a serious uptick in visitors, and I'm guessing issues can come along with that as well. Well, yeah. I mean, obviously, the more people that uh, you have coming to the park, it, it lends itself to the possibilities of, of uh, you know, more incidents. But um, you know, considering the fact that you know we had about 3.2 million people in the park this past year, if uh, you put those numbers out on the Santa Monica Freeway or, or driving around in their automobiles, you know, we're we're really pretty safe up here i mean it's it's not a situation where um you know it's it's one incident or our search and rescue after uh, another okay can you tell us a little bit about the park its history some significant features because what we try and do is paint a picture of what the climate is like there and what's unique about that park for people that haven't even seen pictures or ever been there before Sure, I'd be glad to. Um, yeah, Joshua Tree National Park is located uh, in Southern California. We're in the high desert uh, for the most part. It's actually where two distinct desert ecosystems come together. Uh, we have the Colorado Desert, which is an extension of the Sonoran that runs through Arizona and Mexico and those areas. And we have the Mojave, which is in the higher elevations. And that's where the majority of the Joshua trees are. And uh, also, yeah, a lot of the popular monza granite rock formations that makes us um, kind of an international rock climbing destination um, we are uh, almost 800,000 square acres um, to put that into perspective that's over 12,000 square miles or um, uh, to make it a, a little bit easier we're a little larger than the state of rhode island okay so, so that's it's a, a it's a big park you got to manage it's a fairly large park, yeah. Um, there are bigger parks, but um, uh, given the fact that we're kind of uh, a natural island surrounded by a sea of humanity, um, you know, within oh, a three-and-a-half-hour drive of our entrance stations, we probably have close to 30 million people that live around the area. So we also uh, have a lot of the same challenges and pressures that a lot of those communities um in Southern California have uh, as well. With uh, that large of a park, I mean, it's basically a state in and of itself. 
how common is it for people to go missing there? And do you find most of them within a certain amount of time? Yeah, we, we really do. Um, it, it's not extremely common. We do have people that um, are late on what we call late on arrival. And uh, sometimes when they get to be a certain point and the friends or family or, or uh, you know, people that are with them get concerned, they notify us. Generally, those people tend to show up within a few hours of, uh, of the report. We do, unfortunately, uh, have times when um, there are people that are out on the trail, they, they're disoriented, they get turned around off the trail, or because we have so many rock formations up here, it, it, it's tough to keep people off the rocks. And not that we want to, but you know, when you, when you climb rocks, um, there is one law that is uh, very strictly enforced in Joshua Tree National Park, and that's the law of gravity. <laughs> and, um, yeah. and so, uh, you know, sometimes uh, people um, meet less than fortunate uh, circumstances just by falling off a rock or, or down into a crevice or, or that type of thing. And um, that's when we have to go out and, and take a look around and, and find them and bring them back to their family and loved ones. So falling hazards are obviously a big thing, and I, I know just from uh, Mike and I are very experienced hikers, and we climb as well too, and whenever we go into parks that have become more popular, and even just in general, people getting out in the wilderness is becoming more popular, you have a lot of inexperienced people going out maybe doing things they shouldn't. So outside of um, fall hazards, what are some of the other hazards that people would run into or expect to run into at your park? Well, and that's a really good point, Joe. You know, we have uh, one of our scenarios up here uh, is, you know, the city kid comes out from L.A., uh, is not used to the desert, has flip-flops on and what's left of their thirst buster and takes off on a seven-mile hike on a day where it's 100, 105 degrees. Sure. So, you know, that that usually does not end well. And um, so we do have uh, issues with with uh, that segment of, of visitor uh, that's just not prepared for uh, the hike. Um, and there are places in because of the the terrain uh, here in Joshua Tree National Park, there are places where you can get turned around. I mean, even experienced hikers um, occasionally you know, get uh, a little misdirected and, um, and, you know, maybe two, three, four hours later have to end up spending the night in the park. Um, very seldom do we have, um, major searches and, and rescues. We probably had more last year than, um, what I can remember in almost nine years that I've, that I've been here. Um, and one of those, I, I know you wanted to talk about, uh, unfortunately, is uh, of a gentleman from Canada that um, uh, went missing back in July, and unfortunately, we still have not been able to bring closure to that uh, particular incident. Yeah, absolutely. It's a very sad story, and we're going to talk more about Paul's profile later in the show, but from what it seemed like, he was a very experienced hiker, and he was even in the park the day before, so just when, when we looked at his case... It didn't seem like it was just, like you said, kind of a city slicker coming out for the first time, really wanting to enjoy the outdoors. He seemed to know what he was doing. 
And I know the last time he was seen was on the 49 Palms Oasis Trail. Can you give us a little bit of background about that trail in particular? Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward trail. Uh, it goes in um, actually from outside the border, uh, the border of the park. Uh, you walk in, and um, uh, in other words, you don't have to go through an entrance station to uh, to access the trail. Okay. It goes in. It goes in about a mile and a half to uh, a natural oasis um, where there's a spring out there. Um, the bighorn sheep come down to water there. There's a, a, a number of very mature uh, Washingtonian palms, palm trees that are indigenous to this um, this part of the country um, that are out there. And then when you're done, you turn around and you walk back the same trail a mile and a half back out. So that is one of the things that has kind of uh, been um, a mystery mm-hmm. is how to uh, to get turned around uh, if he did, in fact, stay on the trail or ever made it to the trail. I mean, there, there's a lot of different theories out there now just because we have steadily um, been in that area, you know, our search and jobs are our Joshua Tree National Park Search and Rescue has been doing training exercises uh, out there ever since um, we called off or, or reduced the, the search uh, for Mr. Miller. And it, technically, Joe, in the international park, the search for someone who was missing or lost never totally stops. Sure. Um, obviously, uh, you know, it's not sustainable to keep a hundred, uh, uh, troops out there beating the, the bushes and, um, helicopters and, and canine teams and, and that type of thing. I mean, there comes a point where that has to cease, but we, we make that those areas, um, part of our ongoing training uh, scenarios for our search and rescue teams. And so we've been out there on a regular basis. Thank you, George. And if you could just hang on, we're going to go over Paul's description with Mike, and then we'll come back to you for some more information. Paul Miller obviously was uh, from Canada, a city called Guelph in Ontario, Canada. He was 51 years old. He had a wife and two kids. His wife, Stephanie, is a kindergarten teacher in the Waterloo region, and Paul was a materials manager at a water treatment and uh, filtration company. Both their kids are in public high school. So the description of Paul, he's your... your they graduated public high school. Graduated public high school, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> yeah, they're college age now. They're college age now. Paul, t- pretty typical male, five foot five, 160 pounds. He had salt and pepper hair, so grain a bit. The clothing he was last seen in, uh, he was wearing dark shorts dark gray, almost black, high-tech altitude hiking boots, black hat, and carrying sunglasses. He also did have a camelback for hydration and a Nikon D5300 camera. His personality, medical issues, everything that we could find researching Paul, happily married to his wife for 26 years, no issues at home, no issues at work, so everything seems normal. Yeah, nothing jumps out as... No. Like we've said in the prior episode, we look for red flags to help really identify what could have happened in these cases, and everything seems normal. Everything checks out so far. Yep. And another another box that checks out is his experience in the backcountry. Paul and his wife uh, like to go on a lot of uh, vacations, and they they like to mix in a lot of backcountry hiking in those vacations. So they've been they've been in Canada, North America, Mexico, and everyone described him as a moderate to advanced hiker. 
we kind of see him as someone like ourselves who have gone on a lot of backcountry hikes and yeah i'd say we're not experts in the sense where there's guys that live we're not survivor man exactly but <laughs> we're, we're going on trips that's what we do on vacation we go on these trips we find new places and we've been to all different climates from freezing to desert and know generally what to do in each one you know you, anyone can get hurt in those but we know what we're doing this seems like that type of guy yeah he seems like a kind of guy that if something did happen to him he would keep a calm level head and figure out a way out of it yeah he, he i think he'd know what to do in 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 a, in a dire situation where other people might panic and their panic can inevitably lead to making bad decisions. Like I said, me and Mike don't know him personally. We've never talked to him. We haven't talked to his family, unfortunately, but just based on the history and what they've said, you don't do that many hiking backcountry trips, kayaking, whatever, and not learn a thing or two about what to do. Exactly. It's <clears throat> uh, this is a big red flag for, you know, any case where you see someone going, you know, going missing, if they're experienced, that that just makes it a lot more puzzling. But and George so, talked about it in the interview too. He said yeah. they have an issue with the their city slickers coming out from LA that are wearing flip flops and they have just like a water bottle and they're like, let's go hike in the desert and they have to go get them or yeah. something like that because they don't they don't know what they're getting themselves into. So this this isn't seem like what Paul was like. Yeah, high desert hiking uh, if you're not prepared can can be deadly. We've all been on hikes personally where we've experienced issues with lack of water and exposure to sun and yeah the part where it's you don't think it's dire yet but you're starting to go by the time we we need some water now (laughs) yeah by the time you actually feel dehydrated it's almost too late at that point yeah you you're you go any further into dehydration you're going to start getting delirious and you're you're not going to be making clear decisions but so um that's a basic profile of paul you're you're pretty typical middle-aged man uh, he had a good family life, two grown kids, experienced hiker. Joe now is going to start going into the timeline of what actually happened, what led to his disappearance. Yeah, so we have some good we have some good times and dates here that we're going to go over on like last episode. We're going to start off why he was out there. Paul and his wife, Stephanie, were on vacation in California, Nevada, and including Las Vegas. They're celebrating their 26th wedding anniversary. So again, you're not going to go on a great wedding anniversary trip with your wife if you're not happy. <laughs> in your marriage. So, I mean, that that's where, you know, he, from everyone, the interviews I've watched, and you guys can find these on YouTube. There's a ton of interviews and reports of the family. Uh, he seemed like a great guy and everyone seemed to like him. And, you know, they have their friends doing, they have a GoFundMe page for him. People uh, are coming out that he knew are, to help search. Exactly. We're going to go over that. I mean, so people don't help or want to get that involved for someone that wasn't a good guy. So they're out here for their wedding anniversary, and it was not uncommon for them to do the backwoods camping, hiking, and kayak, and that's what they would do together. So that's, again, playing into his experience. So July 12th of 2018, both Paul and his wife were hiking in the park and came back to their hotel room at the 29 Palms. So not only is he an avid hiker, he spent time the day before in that environment. So even if you're going to make a mistake somewhere or realize you didn't pack appropriately, that's going to be your first day out. Mm -hmm. So he, he was out the day before. And it was July 13th that he essentially went missing. So this is the first date on July 13th. They're prepping to leave the hotel room and Paul wanted to do one more short hike. Try and get a photo of the bighorn sheep. That's why he had that camera with him. So he really wanted to get a a good photo of the sheep. So he, at 9 a.m., left the hotel room and drove his car to the 49 Palms Oasis Trailhead. At 11 a.m., Stephanie said she started to become concerned that he didn't return, but decided to wait another hour. So... Palms Oasis Trailhead is roughly a mile and a half. 
After I go through the timeline, we'll cut back to the interview. We'll have George talk a little bit about the trailhead itself to give you the features. But it's not a difficult trail. It's very short and it doesn't even loop. So you go up one way and you come back the exact same way. So it's not a difficult one to really get up and down. At 11 a.m., Stephanie said she was concerned, but not really ringing the alarm bells just yet because you can be late on arrival. That that's that's very common. I mean, maybe he found a bighorn sheep and he was you exactly. Know, took there's a there's stop. many times where I think I'm going to be back a certain time and I'm probably two hours late. You know, when yeah. you're walking and you're not sure about the train, there's there's a big window there. But at noon, when Paul still didn't return, she contacted the Park Service because she was. She was worried and reported him as missing. Park Service jumped right into action. They had a team together in 30 minutes. So they had, they had a team ready together, and they started the search. They immediately found Paul's rental car at the trailhead. So he hadn't left. The car was there, so he went to the trailhead. And the park superintendent, David Smith, said there was one witness who saw Paul in the morning uh, at the trailhead. So there was somebody who saw someone else, or they talked to a witness that saw someone who met the description of Paul at the trailhead. So I think we can reasonably believe that he went to that trailhead. So it's not one of those instances of he left at nine, his car's not anywhere, did he even make it to the trail? Someone saw him at the the beginning of the trailhead, walking in. Yeah, and it's it's a popular trail too, so there's a lot of people there that would notice things like that. So his car was there, somebody saw him there. So we can reasonably say that he began the hike that he planned. Yep. They went through, did the search, didn't find Paul that day. And they started the search effort. So they have search teams going. So they're doing that for days, not finding anything. We're going to jump forward to September now. Uh, where we're going to get into some, employing some of the technology to do a much wider breadth of area of the park. Yeah. So uh, September rolls around. Park officials actually closed the trail for a few days. Uh, because they bought, brought in some new technology, which uh, George will explain when uh, we talk to him. But this technology, basically, it's a, a helicopter with high-res f- uh, photography equipment on the bottom of it. And it takes really quick pictures. It basically is looking for anything out of the ordinary in the, in the wildlife. And then it takes those pictures, they put it into a program, and then it analyzes that. So the so chap- they, they shut it down so that there wouldn't be people there yeah. to throw off the, the imaging. So they wanted exactly. clean desert and they're going to search for anomalies that aren't desert. Essentially. So um, this happened on Tuesday, uh, the 18th of September. And then by the next day on Wednesday, uh, they, there was still no word of any new discoveries for the search of uh, Miller. So the trail was then reopened on the 20th. The park officials mentioned that it, it will take some time to get those pictures analyzed talking with George, he'll go into it in more detail, but they they spared no expense and no manpower in looking for Paul. They brought out every everything that they have a, to their you know availability was in that park looking for him. Yeah, absolutely. We're talking hundreds of people, canine units, helicopters, over 6,000 man hours were put into looking for Paul. A lot of the problems they were running into would probably have been the same problems Paul experienced, potentially. A lot of the searchers were experiencing a lot of heat exhaustion, so they, a lot of them would try to wake up at 4 a.m., go out and search, and by 9 a.m., they'd be back at camp you know, exhausted because it's 105 degrees, very low humidity. Even you know, prepared search and rescue people are succumbing to exposure out there. So that was a major obstacle that hindered some of the search and rescue efforts. And one side note that we noticed in one of the articles we're reading was there was a lot of frustration with the family. The, the rental car company kept charging Paul yeah. <laughs> while he was missing. 
And we recently just read that uh, the rental car company, which we won't name, yeah, uh, they issued an apology and rescinded all the charges. Yeah, so it seemed more like it was like a paperwork thing because I'm it's sure amazing. they're renting hundreds of cars a day and then every one of one's these not getting returned. Yeah, every one of these cases, you know, the family's going through enough with trying to find their missing person, you know, missing loved one, and then you've got things like. Yeah, no one was worried about getting a rental car back. Yeah, that's, nor, nor should they be. That's the last thing yeah, on their minds. Exactly. Is, oh, I, I got to get this car back by noon. Yeah. Um, so that is kind of what happened in September. And like I said, George is going to go into further, further detail on the uh, the search and rescue efforts. Yeah, we had a, a company come in. Um, it's actually a Canadian company that um, takes. Uh, rapid fire um, photographs from helicopter and then comes back and the computer analyzes those for anything that uh, any any color gradation or, or whatever that uh, that looks different than, than what the natural terrain should look and uh, we had them come in and, and fly over and additional things like that that we've done to uh, to try to bring closure to this have not uh, been able to, to find um, uh, any trace of uh, Mr. Miller. I've seen some search and rescues underway, and you guys are extremely thorough. And, and from what I read, you have the dogs out. You have this incredible new technology where it's scan. And, and I'm assuming, you can correct me if I'm wrong, does it scan the landscape and kind of take that and then just look for anything that doesn't fit? Yeah. That's okay. exactly what it does. Um, like I said, things that the human eye necessarily wouldn't pick up on a flyover, this actually goes in and it makes all these, it, it almost looks like a tiny mosaic when, when you see what's produced by it. And then they feed that into the, the program that uh, the company has developed. And it, any anomalies that come out, it kicks it out and says, okay, at this quadrant, uh, you know, and given the GPS um, coordinates and, and that we found this, uh, there was a patch of blue or something. And, and like I said, um, it, it was without uh, any positive results as well. It's incredible the technology that they're using and obviously with the, the people on the ground and everything too, it's just really unfortunate that there isn't closure for his family yet. So thank you very much for that update on Paul's case. Are there any other unsolved missing persons cases in that park currently that you're still kind of ongoing looking for but have scaled back from? We had a gentleman uh, about nine years ago from Georgia that had hiked in the park before that um, uh, his name was Mr. Iwasco, and um, we found his vehicle uh, with the car door open uh, a few supply type of things in it, but um, he has never been located as well. Um, and so that remains um, uh, a mystery and also an area, as I mentioned before, Joe, is a, a place where in the general area of Juniper Flats where uh, his vehicle was located and where he was thought to have uh, taken off hiking, um, it continues to be a, a, an area that we uh, uh, go back and forth over uh, with our training exercises sure. and um, and search and rescue problems um, that we um, we present to um, our uh, rescue team or search teams. And thus far, still no um, still no uh, indication of what happened to uh, Mr. Owasco. 
Are there um, other animals besides like kind of your small poisonous animals that could potentially get somebody or, or do something like that? Or is it all smaller? No, we have, um, obviously we have uh, mountain lions in the park. Um, coyotes, which are not known to be um, uh, aggressive to um, to a, a live human for the most part. Sure. However, they will they will feed on carrion. Okay. So you know, if if someone went out had a heart attack or or some other issue fell and hit their head and and whatever, um, you know, there are animals that um, uh, like coyotes and vultures and and some other uh, animals that uh, that feed on carrion that um, you know would dispose of the uh, soft tissues uh, of a body. Okay. And yeah, we're, I, and I just want to reiterate for the listeners, um, I, my background is I'm a paramedic, so sometimes I'll come off and ask a lot of these questions that seem kind of morbid, but I'm looking at it from a factual basis, so not to be disrespectful to the families or anything. So if anyone thinks that when they're listening to that, this is just fact-based conversation. So in, in those cases where you do have animals potentially feeding on someone that's passed, you'll usually find clothing or bone. Are there animals that will then take the bone that will potentially take the clothing for any reason where there could be a potential where there really is no sign or evidence left behind that there was a body even there. Well, you know, clothing in, in this type of harsh environment, um, clothing has a way of, um, uh, either being washed away many times, um, down on a Royal or, you know, because there's not, um, drainage you know throughout the desert when, when we get a flash flood it, it'll wash away everything okay um so that creates a problem with that um bones are are you know many times scattered there's not that there's not that many animals that um actually make uh, a meal out of um uh, skeletal uh leftovers but it's um they they are scattered and and moved around and and that type of thing so you know that that is a challenge for for people trying to reconstruct uh some of these disappearances in in certain areas sure yeah especially like you said if it rains then all of a sudden an area you might not have searched yet or went over that it could have been there it gets moved and things like that which is, you know, six of one, half dozen of the other. It also, there have been, you know, situations where we have found uh, clues to, to different uh, situations because something was washed down, uh, you know, the wash from where it originally was. Okay. So, you know, it's one of those things where it, it's, it, it's, uh, it's both a blessing and a curse sometimes. Sure. Okay, so that was information on... Basically, the technology they're employing, and it was really cool to, to image it as like almost like a mosaic. So it's taking a ton of pictures, putting it all together in a, in a large profile, and the computer's just analyzing for anything that stands out, colors, things that don't match a landscape. So it's really, really high-def, high-tech Piece stuff. Piece of clothing. Yeah, anything. anything. So it's really cool, and they, they haven't turned up anything as of yet. I know when they first took the images... Um, people are wondering what it saw and they said back at that time that it takes time obviously for the computer to analyze it but still up to now they're not seeing any anomalies so and they're doing a wide area i mean when you're flying over in a helicopter doing that you're covering area that you probably can't walk yeah so as of 
As of now, the most recent thing we have updated is on November 6th was a Tuesday. Dawn Robinson and her husband, David Robinson, arrived from Canada late Tuesday and have repeatedly hiked the 49 Palms Oasis Trail accompanied by park rangers and volunteers and other search and rescue team members. Now, Dawn is Paul's sister. So they're still obviously trying to find answers for this. And it's really, it's really sad because it's, they're getting no closure at all. Whenever you have any of these unexplained events, it's going to be kind of this open chapter that you can't finish in this story. So she said herself, the fact that he still hasn't been found is just baffling. And that's true. And they're, they're desperate for answers is what she said. And we really got the <clears throat> sense for with talking with George that, you know, these people that work at the park really care about finding this man too. They, they take it seriously. And yeah. I think they take it personally. They feel bad that they've, they've not been able to find anything yet. Yeah. I mean, if you can imagine for the men and women who do search and rescue, like that's their job is search and rescue. So if they have an open case, they're not finding like, that's going to hit you hard. Yeah. I, I could imagine because it, it seems like a failure. So what they typically end up having to do in, in George mentioned the interview is that they got to scale down. You know, you can't put 600 people every day, all day long, all the time. You have to inevitably scale back the, the manhunt. But he said, all they do is then whenever they're doing training operations, they pick their areas based on those areas where Paul could be. Exactly. So yep. they're, they're doing their training missions they're doing this stuff in there. So they're able to mix training with still continually searching for, so they don't ever close cases. As he said, you know, they're leaving them open and they're always, always searching to hopefully bring closure to the family. So really his sister went there hoping that by hiking the trail, she can look at things through her brother's eyes and really come away with clues about what he could have done or what could have happened. So she said they knew he was in a rush that morning. He had a small window of opportunity. He picked the trail based on that he could do a short hike and get back to a hotel within a couple hours. So he left with the idea in mind of, I really want to get a picture of a bighorn sheep, but we're leaving today. Here's a quick trail I can do mm-hmm. in a couple hours that I might be able to get my snapshot and then we can get we can get out of here. Yep. And she even said too, when she's going to t- trail, her, her statement was, it's a pretty obvious trail. If you stay on it, you'll get to the oasis and back without any problem. She said, it's quite hilly. If you get off the trail, it's hard to see where the trail is and it disappears quickly. With that said, the town can still be seen from the tops of the hills. So a hiker could get lost, but then as soon as you climb a hill, you can quickly orient yourself. Yeah, day or night, you're going to see... Lights, you're going to see... You're going to see yeah. civilization off in the distance. Absolutely. Yeah. So it's, it's a huge park in regards to... George even said it's bigger than the state of Rhode Island, but the areas that people are occupying are small. Yeah. So it's highly trafficked. Exactly. So it'd be different if he's got like a 42 mile desert trail yep. and now you have the area the size of a quarter of a state to search for somebody. Yeah. It's, it's a small area. And you know, <clears throat> I'm assuming being a experienced hiker, if he would have been injured, you know, a lot of times if you're by yourself, one of the best things you do is maybe you take shelter and kind of stay in the place that you got injured because that gives you the best chance of search and rescue finding you. Especially on a well-traveled trail. Well-traveled trail, exactly. Into, you know, people saw what the trailhead. Why? Because they were going to the Oasis yeah. as well. So there's, you, it's, you know, unlike last case where it's small park, not a lot of visitors. Yeah. This one, you have a ton of visitors. George even mentioned they've doubled their numbers. They have millions of people coming to this park every year. This is a high-traffic park. And if you've ever been to a national park with high traffic, it's almost annoying at some of the shorter trails. You'll have, it'll be crowded. There's, uh, when we went to Glacier National Park, Glacier. we, we backcountry, we hiked, but then we did a couple of the, the, you know, more touristy trails. And there's sometimes when you're going along a narrow part, you have to stop and like let people go that by. Happens, and, yeah, that happened. I was hiking out in the Tetons earlier this year and 
the section towards the end, you're, it's a traffic jam of people. You're literally yeah. waiting for people to go by. Yeah, so but, if something uh, happens, you have yeah. 20, 30 people reporting it and exactly. stuff like that. So the fact that no one saw him outside of just catching him at the trailhead and that was it is a little crazy and a, and a little obscure. So official theories right now, Mike, I mean, what, what are you hearing from law enforcement family? I mean, the... The most logical and what, you know, people are kind of, you know, hanging their hat on is that maybe he, he may have tried to climb up on some rocks or, you know, he, he went out there trying to find some bighorn sheep. He maybe tried to climb up on some rocks and slipped and fell into an area that, you know, wouldn't be easily, you know, he wouldn't be easily found when he fell in there. But, you know, Joe and I were talking about all the different possibilities of what could have happened to him. And nothing, nothing really makes sense. So you would assume. Yeah, you have your animal theory. So you have the. Uh, there's no big predators. Yeah, in the there's park. there's poisonous snakes, scorpions. Yep. There's mountain lions, coyotes. Mountain lions always sound bad, but they typically leave people alone. Yeah, and one thing you, you'll know about if you've ever hiked in national parks is, and we always joke about this when we hike, is we never we never see wildlife because the animals are smart enough to know to kind of steer clear of some of the higher trafficked areas. Yeah, um, unless it's like Yosemite when they're feeding them. <laughs> yeah. But even then, they're not attacking the people exactly. just going up for them for food, which we don't condone. But yeah. in the so, more wild areas, you typically don't see them unless you're sneaking around and trying to catch them. Yeah. And <clears throat> so, you know, the, the most logical explanation of what happened to Paul, a lot of people are saying is he get, was injured, either, you know, climbing on some rocks or going over an obstacle. But then... What happened, you know, if he, he perished out there, what happened to his body? They had canine units all over the park. They had these helicopters taking these high-res photos. If you fall, and even if you fall into a crevice or, you know, some type of hole in the ground, dogs are going to find you. Yeah, that's yeah. The, the can, that's, that's what, what's the craziest. And we'll jump into our theories, really. So we kind of talked about animals. I think exposure is extremely relevant. Yeah. He disappeared around noon in the desert. You know, 105, 110 degrees is not uncommon. Dry heat. So I'd say exposure for sure. Yeah, with exposure, anybody that's hiked in desert climates, you know, dehydration does cause people to not think clearly. I mean, there's a chance that he got dehydrated wandered off the trail maybe walked for several miles just out into the desert somehow he walked yeah, like into some a, sort of delirious haze which, yeah yeah i mean that that's that's actually a very good point because you hear about the people that think they see water or things like that in desert granted he was going towards an oasis but again you have a situation where maybe you're just unaware of what's really going on so he's normally a hiker but you can kind of you can kind of get caught in those situations where you're not really sure and then Maybe it was just one of those times he was in the desert the day before. Yeah. So he had a lot of sun exposure the day before. Maybe he brought out enough water, but wasn't really attuned to the symptoms that he was having. He's traveling a lot. So if you get out and get delirious, did he go off trail and Mm -hmm. then think he was on the trail and just kept walking and walking and walking? Possibility. That's a possibility. But then again, you have helicopter, you have 6,000 hours of manpower, 600 searchers, canine units. Yep. You have all this plus people. all of the other people in the park. <clears throat> yeah, out there. You know, one other possibility is in our first episode we talked about one of the leading theories of why Paul Fugate went missing was some type of criminal activity. Mm-hmm. Being that Paul Miller was on a trail that goes in one way and out one way, if someone was trying to rob him for his camera 
or, you know, say he again came across something that he wasn't supposed to see. There's only one way in and out of there. Yeah. And it's a very heavily trafficked trail. People are going to see, you know, see him, yeah. see this happening. <laughs> I mean, there, there'd be no way to get away with that. Yeah. And, and, then so, it, and then it's the whole idea of why would a criminal be out there? Yeah. And that's in that spot. It in, is in George in the middle of the desert. Yeah, as George stated, the, the park is basically surrounded by a sea of humanity. So it's not like in our first episode where the park was near the Mexico border. This park is literally in the middle of humanity. Yeah. There's no reason if you're doing a, you know, some it's type of big trafficking line he might have stumbled across. Yeah, you're, that's not going to happen in this park. Yeah, it's a short trail. It should only take a couple hours. And there's water at the end of it. And, so, and that's that's like a big thing. And he had like, a camelback on his, so he probably at least had two liters of water on him. Yeah. And any experienced hiker, as soon as they get to water, they're going to fill that up again. Yeah. So, um, I mean, the one thing um, George mentioned in the interview, too, is what they can run into. Because as you heard, we asked about, can an animal, would an animal be interested in human remains as far as bones go? Because he said, that, you know, coyotes and mountain lions will leave you alone until you've passed and then they'll obviously they turn the scavengers exactly but yep. I, I and as you heard i asked him about just clothing and bone i know typically animals aren't going to eat bone but like i don't know that area you know is there an animal that typically collects them for nesting or something like that and he said not really no but you have the issues with flash flooding because there is no drainage in a desert that they can have things completely washed away so he said um it's kind of a blessing and a curse it's a blessing in the sense where sometimes that occurs and things wash up and they discover stuff or sometimes they wash away and they sometimes they wash it. away. So, you know, was it a completely normal thing that happened and then it was moved from a search area? I don't know. Uh, you know, <laughs> another thing we looked at too was he left his rental car there. So that rules out that he left the park on his own. Yeah. At least driving himself out of there. Now, is it possible that he came off the trail and got into a car with someone else? It's possible, but yeah. It's I mean, a it's really possible. busy park, and so, there would have been possible, a witness. but far-fetched. Yeah, because they, they pretty much interviewed everyone that was in that area after his wife reported him missing, mm-hmm. and you would have th- you, you'd think that someone would have said, oh, yeah, I saw him walk out of the trail and get into somebody else's car. Yep. That would be something a couple people probably see. Yeah, and unlike last case that was 40 years ago, yeah. this is now, it's blasted all over the news. It's been in the, the yeah. Desert Sun news for... Several articles and news broadcasts. Pretty much across the southern southwestern United States, this story has been in and out of the news for the last couple months. Yeah. So anybody who follows hiking or anything like this. Well, if you've been to that area. Yeah. I'd say it's, you know, pretty much if if you don't follow the hiking stuff, you're not going to hear about it in the news around us by Wisconsin. But if you live down there, they had a ton of stories about it because it's not a very common thing for someone to disappear. Yeah, Paul, it, you know, George George was saying that this is a very uncommon thing to happen in in his park. Yeah, which surprised me. Yeah. I, I like and I even I even asked him. I said, you know, with all those people are you having a lot of these issues? He said not really and the the only hiker that they've had still missing was 9 years ago. You know, basically yeah. a year before he started his position. So yep. that that actually did surprise me, but that also lay, weighs into how heavily trafficked this park is and how short the trails are. And that weighs into how bizarre this case is. I mean, missing people going missing in Joshua Tree National Park is very, very rare. Yeah. Anyone who gets disoriented or lost gets found within 24 hours, yeah, 99.99% of the time. And again, not to be morbid, but they'll find the body. If they did perish because yep. of something, 
they find them. And it's very rare that it's completely without a trace. So it's, it's say, yeah, there's, there's the possibility that always, you know, months from now, someone can stumble across a bone or whatever, and it can be identified, but it's, it's, it's pretty crazy. This that- case almost baffles me more than the Paul Fugay case, because that one seemed to have, he, he came across some criminal activity going on and yeah, that, that's so close to the border, and they and they and not to rehatch a case, but it just got so weird at the end. Yeah, it's almost like a bunch of people knew something else was happening, but no one was talking about it. But this and, one, yeah, this, yeah. this is a, a regular guy who hikes, and yep. it's modern times, I guess, is makes it seem more baffling because we have the technology, we have the manpower, we have the experience. You know, they it's heavily traveled. We have witnesses, and there's nothing. Yeah, I it's. We have uh, the most advanced technology available to search and rescue right now in the form of, you know, the helicopters with that imaging technology. I'm sure they're also using helicopters with FLIR on it for nighttime searches. It's, it's baffling. I, I, we, tr- we tried to think of every possibility that doesn't sound absolutely crazy to explain what happened to Paul. Yeah, we, we kept coming back to, well, we can't talk about aliens. Can't talk about aliens. We can't talk about Bigfoot. Yeah, but it's just... Uh, it's, or Sasquatch. I know, but it's... it's uh, Yeah, he went there, disappeared. They haven't found anything looking for months, using the technology. There's people out there looking for him. Yeah. Um, and in modern society, around heavily trafficked areas... Late that, 2018, you know, a connected society, everyone's got cell phones, everyone's got... Yeah. Uh, GPS, everyone's, you know... That was the one thing we didn't bring up. I forgot about that. He left his cell phone at the hotel. Oh, that's a good point. So, and, and they said it's spotty connection to the park, and I had that in the notes, and I forgot where I put it, but he didn't bring his cell phone. But again, I've done that too. If you're kind of on your trip and you're going to run out and grab something real yep. quick, you know, I'm going to grab the bare essentials to make that thing happen and go. So like, he wanted that picture of being a sheep, and I'm right there with him. Yeah. I go... Well, he thought he was going to be gone for an hour. And I carry so much <laughs> extra equipment to get that shot. Yeah. Like, I bring drones out and stuff where I can because some parks don't allow it. Like, I bring camera equipment. So, like, I'll pack my bag for backcountry and it'll be under, like, 30 pounds. And that's good because a lot of people will be at 50. But then I'll put in 15 pounds of camera equipment. Because, like, I and I'm kind of right, right there. Like I said, I'm right there with Paul. Like, if I can get a cool shot of us hiking or some animal. Like, I'm not trying to be on National Geographic, but it just really helps me relive that yeah. scene. So for him, he wanted to take back something memorable from his trip and he really wanted that picture. Again, not the actions of somebody who's trying to disappear. It is very disappointing that he didn't have his phone with him because even spotty connection, you would assume they'd be able to track his location the GPS via stuff, GPS. Yeah. And they could ping the cell phone, I think. They could ping it, it or yeah. they could at least figure out, oh, an hour ago he was in this these coordinates. It's it's uh, every one of these cases. There's always something where, like Paul Fugate not having his radio, or Paul Miller forgetting his cell phone. It's kind of like, man, if if, they just, if you had that on you, if they just had that on him, we probably wouldn't be talking about it. And he'd be found. So, so, and that's and I that's, mean, that's the like saddest a, part. That's I, a that's almost like a warning for people going out. It's like just bring your cell phone, man. Like just bring. I mean, I have an iPhone, so I bring it for the camera. I I, I know I, I bring mine for the camera, <laughs> but like there is some truth in the sense that like. Just have it with you, cause why not? And, and it's another, uh, it's another tool for in case something happens to you. Will you have service? Maybe, maybe not. Well, but in Colorado, we didn't have service, and I got to thirteen thousand feet on this mountain. All of a sudden, I got service, and I called my wife. I was like, "I'm almost made it to the summit." Happened to me on Rainier. Yeah, I, know, like it's I, just, 
I, did, I get terrible reception at my house in Milwaukee, <laughs> but I was on the side of Mount Rainier and I was getting full bars. Yeah. So explain that one. But uh, before we wrap up, I do want to cut to George's final comments about how his team takes to search and rescue cases in the park. Just let me say in closing that, um, you know, to uh, a lot of people, this is a headline in, in a, um, a newspaper or on a, on a TV uh, telecast. You know, to us at the Park Service, we take these situations very, very seriously because we know that it's not just a person out there that's lost. There's, a, there's an extended group of people that care about this person, that love this person, that um, would at least... Um, like to have closure in these incidents and we uh i just want to assure the public we take it very seriously as a part of our job and um we will continue to to do our very best to try to bring closure to um to these two cases and and to anything else um that, that would arise in the park absolutely uh, George, thank you very much for taking your time to come on the show and answer some of these questions. I always like getting the information from people that are there every day and know it best rather than me and Mike trying to convey what the park's like or what the conditions are like. So thanks again for coming on the show, and I, and I hope we can uh, contact you in the future for more interviews. All right, Joe, good talking with you. Have a good uh, holiday season. You too. So that was George, and again, thank you very much for coming on the show, and thanks to the Park Service. We're going to try and wrap things up now. Mike, why don't you take it away? Unfortunately, we can't really come to a conclusion. Nope. What happened to Paul? Yeah, because... we won't really come to many conclusions on any of these episodes. Yeah, but... it is called Locations Unknown. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if locations were known, it would just be us reporting the news. If anything develops in this case down the road, we definitely will revisit Paul Miller. Yeah, this is so fresh. We, we will probably see updates. We even debated doing this episode because it was so new, but it was it, there's. A lot of interesting facts outside of just a normal missing person's and case. And if, if you know anything about the case, obviously call the uh, National Park Service, call Joshua Tree State Park. Um, the family has several Facebook pages ongoing right now where they're trying to get any type of information on Paul. If you have anything that you might know, go to go to their page. Yep, there's a, there is a GoFundMe. From what I read, Paul was the, the main income earner in the household. So they have a GoFundMe if you want to help the family. It does, obviously... Uh, None of it's good, but it's as someone with kids. If I had something like that happen to me, their kids are grown up, which totally helps. Yeah. So uh, not still not a good thing, but they're they're the kids but, are um, older, so it's a little bit better for the family. But yeah, go to the GoFundMe if you if you can spare anything, go to the GoFundMe and contribute. It's uh, it's a sad case. Uh, maybe one of, one day one of these cases will will be able to report at the end that yeah somebody was actually found. Yeah. But uh, if you like these episodes, check out our first episode on Paul Fugate. Also, you can visit us online at locationsunknown.org, at locationsunknown on Facebook and in Instagram. Absolutely. Um, and we'd like to thank the uh, Joshua Tree National Park uh, Ranger Service and George for allowing us to do the interview on the air. Any feedback you have on the episode, let us know on Facebook. We got some good feedback on the first episode, and we interact with everyone who comments on... Yeah, so if we made it worse, let us know. Yeah. We, we can undo it and go back. We can go back to the way it was before. Yeah, so uh, <laughs> with that said, everyone have a good holiday if you don't hear from us again before Christmas, and we'll uh, talk to you soon. 